Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Hope that you're doing well. Hope that you're having a good weekend so far. Uh, we've had a busy weekend at my house. Um, we uh, participated in the VBS sports camp yesterday. I got my, uh, my Lego bracelet here. Um, if you weren't there, I, somehow they found a way to blend Legos and American Ninja Warrior into one. Somehow that it made sense, but uh, it really was a fun time. My kids uh, learned a scripture song about Joshua 1.9 that they've been singing nonstop. So thank you for that. Um, and uh, I also want to just thank the volunteers. Wow, just to give up a whole Saturday to, to bless us families. Um, we just, we thank you so much and we honor you for, for doing that and for investing in uh, our kids. And so uh, thank you. Thank you to Lisa and Rich for all the work that they put into it as well. All right. As Pastor Chris said, we are continuing on in our series here through the book of 2 Samuel. And uh, today, we're going to be looking at chapters 8 through 10. And so actually, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, we're going to get into the text pretty quick this morning. It's, uh, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, you can use one of our pew Bibles, and the text is found on page 260. And the three chapters we're going to look at today, on the surface, they may seem like they don't really relate to each other, uh, but actually, I, I hope that uh, by the end, you'll be able to see that they actually fit quite nicely together. And one thing about these three chapters is that they wrap up a section in 2 Samuel where we see the rise and the greatness of David. In fact, one way that I think you could outline this book or to break it down is, is you could look at it in sections. And what you have here in this book is that the first 10 chapters, chapters 1 to 10, they highlight and show the rise and the greatness of David. Whereas chapters 11 through 20 really highlight and show the downfall of David. And then the last four chapters in the book are kind of a, a wrap-up or an appendices of, of some things that didn't quite fit in uh, with the flow of the story, but that were necessary to be in there. And so uh, that's really the, the way that the book is laid out. And so this morning, we're going to wrap up that section where we, I'm just going to be honest with you, this is going to be as good as it gets from here on out. From, uh, you know, starting next week, we're going to take a hard turn and, and looking at this guy's downfall and, and the flaws in his character. But today is a happy note, and so I'm glad that I get to do it, right? Um, here's the thing about these chapters. It's no accident that they follow last week's chapter, chapter 7. And what we're going to see as we walk through them is that uh, last week, as God made a covenant with David, as he made some promises to David, what we're going to see is that, uh, that God was faithful in those, that he actually did what he said he was going to do. He kept his promises. And so I think that's one of the things that the author is trying to show us in the way that he's laid out these chapters. And, and ultimately, I think what kind of big idea where we're going today, I think what he's trying to show us is that before he transitions into this section of, of looking at the downfall of David, he's trying to show us and highlight for us the positive characteristics of David's reign as God's chosen king. In other words, I think he is describing for us what an archetypal king representing God should look like. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to walk through uh, these three chapters and see what it is that they communicate to us about how God's king is supposed to reign. And then we will finish by seeing how this affects us and what our response should be to a king like this. But before we dive in, let me uh, just open us up with a word of prayer. I want to pray for our high schoolers. Uh, as you notice, the, this front section is not quite as full as normal. 
And that's because about 30-some high school students, along with volunteers, uh, I don't know if you saw them out in the parking lot, but they're leaving on a mission trip this morning down to Kentucky uh, to to serve uh, down there. And uh, so they'll they'll be driving for the next couple hours, and they'll be working all week uh, with power tools, which is a little scary, um, because I know these kids. They they don't seem like the power tool type, but um, (laughs) so let me pray for them and uh, pray for our time this morning. Father, we, we invite your presence here this morning. We ask that the Holy Spirit would come. He would open up the scriptures, illuminate them to us today. Lord, I pray you would give us uh, eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know you better. And Lord, we do, we, we lift up these, uh, these high schoolers, Lord, the volunteers who are going. God, we just pray that this week would be a defining moment in their life. Lord, a moment where they, they just went a little bit deeper in their walk with you. And God, we do ask for protection. God, I pray you give them safe travels down and back. Lord, I pray uh, you give them uh, safety as they are working with dangerous uh, tools and and materials, Lord. And so, God, we just pray that your blessing and your protection would be on them and be on our time here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so again, I said we're going to jump in pretty quick. And so starting in chapter 8, verse 1, we read this. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amah out of the hand of the Philistines, and he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground, two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rohab, the king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer, and they brought them to Jerusalem. And from Batah and from Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had often fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations that he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Amalek, and from the spoils of Hadadezer, the son of Rohab, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Um, That's not quite the end of the chapter, but let me stop there. And I just want to point out a couple things. And, and the first thing I want to point out is that uh, most believe that this chapter is a summary of the warfare and the victories which occurred during David's reign as king over Israel. 
And so again, uh, the chronology and the timeline is somewhat unclear. Because as I said in that first week of this, the, the narrator of this story, the author, he doesn't always write in chronological order. Rather, he's more interested in, in tying things together thematically in order to preach to us, in order to teach us something about God and about the nation of Israel. And so again, the, the timeline of these wars is not uh, super clear of, of when these things took place. It's, it's more of a summary. However, though, the thing about this summary that I think is fascinating is that I believe it shows us that Yahweh is a God who keeps his promises. You see, all the way back in Genesis, when God approached Abraham and made a covenant with him, as part of that covenant, he promised to give Abraham's descendants a large portion of land. And we talked about that a little bit in the first week of this series. But until this moment, until David became king, and until these victories occurred, that promise had only ever been partially realized. You see, after uh, the people left Egypt during the Exodus, uh, they, again, you know the story, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, but then through Joshua, they finally got to enter the promised land, but they, they, again, they did not destroy those nations that the Lord had asked them to, and they did not fully receive their inheritance. They didn't get all of that land, and yet, here finally, finally someone, God's anointed, he's taking care of it. But in case we're tempted to give David too much credit here, the author is quick to remind us who is behind these victories. And we know this because he repeats it twice. And, and in the Bible, in the scriptures, when you see something repeated, it's there for emphasis. And, and what does the, the narrator tell us both in verse 6 and in verse 14? He says, And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And so Yahweh, he is behind these victories. He is the one who is defeating his enemies. And not only that, but we see here that the Lord is keeping the promise he made to Abraham, but not only to Abraham, but also the Lord made some promises to David, and we saw those last week. And so let me point those out. Last week when Pastor Chris walked us through chapter 7, um, we, we saw some promises that God made to David. Obviously, the main promise was that he would build a house for him. And by building a house, he meant that he was going to build a royal dynasty out of David's lion, and, and as Chris drew out, we saw that ultimately that promise was fulfilled in Jesus, that Jesus was the king who would sit on David's throne forever. However, though, if you, if you dig back into chapter 7, you see that God also made some promises to David that, that you might expect would be fulfilled in his lifetime. Uh, for example, in verse 9 of chapter 7, God said, I will make for you a great name, like a name of the great ones of the earth. And so what did we just read in chapter 8, verse 13? It says, And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Saul. And so God says, I'm going to make your name great. And then the author tells us that David made a great name. Now, we know that he made a great name because the Lord gave him victory wherever he went. And so don't, don't be confused there. The Lord made his name great. And I believe that, that the narrator put that in there intentionally to show us that God is keeping his promises. As well in chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, it says, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, 
and I will give you rest from all your enemies. So God promises there to give Israel a place to give them land. Uh, he also promises to give them rest from their enemies that, so that they won't be disturbed or bothered anymore. And so what we see in chapter 8, as I've already pointed out, is that God is fulfilling his promises to David. David defeats Israel's enemy, and as a result, he extends the size of the nation. And so you could say there that now Israel has a place. They have land, the land that they were always meant to have as well. Another result of these victories is that the nation of Israel is at rest from a, for a time. They, they are finally at rest from these enemies that had been uh, fighting them for many, many years. And I think this is really cool to see visually. And so let me, uh, Scott, if you could go ahead and put that map up here and show you what it looks like. You can't really see it because it's very small, and I apologize for that. <laughs> but if you look at the gray section, and again, the colors aren't super clear either, so I'm, I'm batting a thousand here. Um, but if you focus really hard, or if you get your binoculars out, what you see is that there's this little gray section right in the middle. And that represents the size of Israel during Saul's reign. Whereas the green that's now surrounding it, that represents the size of Israel now during David's reign after he has defeated these enemies. And when you look at the, this list of nations that we talked about in chapter 8, and when you see them on the map, this is the who's who of Israel's enemies. I mean, these are, you know, Israel's most wanted list, you know. And, and the other thing that's kind of cool is when you look at, it, uh, at the map, you see that David defeated Syria and Zobah to the north. He defeated uh, Edom and Amalek to the south. He defeated Moab and Ammon to the east and Philistia to the west. And so you literally, you could say that David defeated his enemies from the north, the south, the east, and the west. And why could he do that? Because as the author has already told us, he did it because the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And so that's chapter 8. Again, it's a, it's a summary, it's a highlight reel of David's victories throughout his reign. And again, I think it points to God's faithfulness to his own promises. And so let's move on now and look at chapter 9, starting in verse 1. We read this. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and, king, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makar, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then the king David sent and brought him from the house of Makar, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, and he fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore all, to you all the land of, your father, of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always." And he paid homage and he said, What is your servant that you would show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house, 
I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring produce that your master's son may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servants do. So Mephibosheth sat ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And he lived in Ziba's house. And, he, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Okay, again, on this, this may seem like random, like this just came out of nowhere. But stay with me here. In chapter 9, we see David as the king express his desire to show kindness to the house of Saul. Now, to many, this would seem extremely surprising. And the reason for that is because in the ancient world, when a, a new regime or a new monarchy took over... One of the first things that they would do is they would totally wipe out any family members from the previous ruling family. And yet here, David, far from wanting to wipe out or destroy Saul's descendants, he wants to bless them. In fact, the Hebrew word here in verse 1, which the ESV translates as kindness, is the Hebrew word hesed. And Chris talked about this word a few weeks ago in one of his messages, and it's, a, it's an extremely important word in the Hebrew language. And the thing about it is, is that no single English word quite captures its meaning. It, it's a, and it's an extremely rich word that carries with it I, the idea of loving kindness, or steadfast love, or, or loyalty, or covenantal love, or grace, or mercy. It, it carries with it all of these ideas. And so because of that, the English translators, when they go from Hebrew into English, uh, they, they have to end up choosing a word to try to describe it, and here we see that the ESV used the word kindness. And that's fine. Just realize that it's referring to more than just a, a simple act of kindness. It's, it has the idea of love, of loyalty. And so here, David expresses this, this desire, this intent to show hesed to Saul's house. And through some research, he finds out that there still is a descendant left. He's a son of Jonathan, and his name is Mephibosheth. Now, on the surface, this desire of David may seem random or unexpected, but actually, it's him keeping a promise. You see, if you were with us last summer when we went through 1 Samuel, uh, one of those weeks we highlighted Jonathan and David's friendship. And one of the last times that these two men were together, they, they made a covenant with each other. They, they made a promise to each other. And basically, the the, the covenant, it entailed uh, that, that Jonathan made David promise that David, after he became king, that he would show steadfast love, or at least that's what the ESV translated it as, that he would show steadfast love to Jonathan and to his house. But if you look at that, he, uh, that, Greek, uh, that Hebrew word there, uh, where they said steadfast love, it's actually the same word, hesed. And so again, here is David, what some scholars believe is some 15 to 20 years after he made this uh, covenant with Jonathan, here he is keeping his word, fulfilling this promise. And I came across this story this week of another guy who, who like David, did what it took in order to keep a promise. Um, his name is Lefty Gomez, and uh, I'm not sure if his mother didn't like him or if that's a nickname. Actually, it's, it's because he pitched left-handed, but he was a pitcher for the New York Yankees. 
And during this one particular game, uh, he wasn't doing so well. Um, I believe he's a Hall of Famer, so this isn't um, maybe, uh, this isn't a normal day for him, perhaps. But he ends up loading the bases. And so he signals out to his catcher, a guy by the name of Bill Dickey. Uh, again, these are real names. <laughs> Lefty Gomez and Bill Dickey. And Bill uh, comes out to the mound, assuming that, that uh, Lefty wants to talk over how to pitch the next batter in order to not give up some runs. And so uh, Bill gets out to the mound, and uh, Lefty looks at him, and he says, um, he says, do you have any uh, extra bird dogs back home in Arkansas? <laughs> and Dickie, he was so thrown off by this question, as you might expect, that he looks at Lefty and he says, why are you asking me about bird dogs when the bases are loaded? To which Lefty replied, well, a friend of mine knows that you hunt, and he asked me to find out from you if I ever thought of it. And, uh, well, I just thought of it. And uh, so talk about a guy that, that did what it took to keep a promise even when it was inconvenient. Now, all that aside, uh, one of the things that I think is so cool about this passage is that David isn't just doing the bare minimum here. He isn't just, you know, scraping by on this promise. No, in fact, I, I think that this story that we just read, I think it's one of the, the clearest pictures of the gospel in the Old Testament. And I think it's one of the many ways that David foreshadowed Jesus. You see, we were told in that passage over and over again that Mephibosheth was lame, that he was crippled. And we actually know how this happened. Uh, we're told uh, the story in, in 2 Samuel chapter 4. And basically, if you don't know what happened, um, when news broke in Israel that they had been defeated by the Philistines, um, you can read about that in uh, 1 Samuel 31 or in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, when that news broke that they had been defeated and that their king, Saul, had been killed, um, uh, Mephibosheth was a little boy at the time, he was five years old, and his nurse, who was caring for him, uh, began to flee in haste, and she apparently at some point uh, tripped or fell or dropped him, and he was injured in such a way that he was crippled for the rest of his life. And so here he is, now an adult, and he's still lame, he's unable to walk, and yet he gets summoned by the king. Which again, if you put yourself in his shoes, that had to be a, a terrifying experience. Here is the new king, and he is calling you to come to his palace. And, and you, again, that's terrifying because of what I said earlier about how monarchies t uh, treated the former family. But he comes to the, to, to the palace, he, he pays David homage, and then the first thing that David says to him that we're told there is he says to him, do not fear. In other words, he says, don't be afraid, Mephibosheth. And I think what David is doing there is he, he is offering Mephibosheth protection. And then David, the next thing he says is, I'm going to restore your grandfather's land. I'm, I'm going to invite you to eat at my table always. And so what's David doing there? Well, I think he's offering him provision. He's saying, look, you don't have to worry about anything anymore. I'm, I'm going to take care of you. And then one final action that we see that David does there by, by offering him a seat at the table is he's treating him like one of his own sons. And so literally, you could say that, that David, who has taken this man who, was, uh, who could be considered his enemy, who is lame and is unable to help himself or to, to serve the king, and he has poured out this, this hesed onto him. He's poured out his covenant faithfulness, his loving kindness. And as a result, he's given this man protection, provision, and position. 
Now, if that's not a picture of the gospel and of what Jesus did for you and for me, then I don't know what one is. You see, you and me, we are spiritually crippled. We are unable to help ourselves or to serve the king. As well, like Mephibosheth, we too could be considered an enemy of the king. Yet Jesus, the true and better king, he showed you and he showed me hesed. He showed us love. He poured out his grace upon us. And as a result, we too, like Mephibosheth, we have protection. We have provision. We have position. You see, because of King Jesus, we don't have to be afraid anymore. Because of Jesus, we have all that we need. We, we lack for nothing. And because of Jesus, you and I have a seat at the table. Because of Jesus, we're considered a son, a daughter. We've been invited into the family of God. And so that's chapter 9. Again, I believe it's this beautiful picture of the gospel and of Jesus. But let's move on and, and let's look at this last chapter, chapter 10, and then we'll try to tie everything together. And so chapter 10, starting in verse 1, it says this. After this, the king of the Anamites died. Uh, the Anamite, Ammonites, died, and Hanan, the son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servant to cons- so David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, "Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he's honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it?" So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half of, the beard, of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And, and the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the, the Ammonites sent and they hired the Syrians of Beth-Rohab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. All right, let's stop there. Basically, if you would keep on reading this chapter, what you would see is that Israel's hand is forced, and they go to a war with the Ammonites and the Syrians, and they, and they totally destroy them. But, but here at the beginning of the chapter... What we're told is that David wants to deal loyally with Hanan, this king. And if you uh, look at the ESV note there, if you're looking at one of the Pew Bibles, uh, there's this little footnote, and it says that the word loyally could be translated as kindly. And again, it's that Hebrew word hesed. And so, here is David once again wanting to show hesed, kindness to someone, yet this time, instead of humbly receiving the kindness of the king, it is rejected. And not only is it rejected, but, but they actually, uh, they, they shame the men who came uh, to deliver this news of kindness. Now when it says there that they shaved off half their beards, it's, it's not referring to the fact of like what happened to me earlier this week when, when I trimmed my beard, when I took off some length. You know, it wasn't shaved this way. Um, actually, I have a picture of one of the men. I, uh, if we could go ahead and put that up. It would have looked more uh, something like this. 
Now, I don't care who you are. That's not a good look for nobody. That, that's not coming in fashion anytime soon. And uh, so that's what they did. They shaved off half their beards. And, and then it, um, it says they shaved off half their garments. And so I think we have a picture. No, I'm just kidding. We, did, we, didn't, we didn't have that picture. I didn't, I didn't want to lose my job here. But, um, but I hope that what you're able to see here is, is the, the, the humiliation that you're able to see the, the shame that this act would have brought to these men. And in fact, I believe that this was an act of war. This was not just some fraternity prank gone wrong. No, this, this was war. These men were out to, to shame uh, and to embarrass these men. And so, if you, again, if you follow the story closely, what you see is that, um, that, that the Ammonites, because of this, they realize like, oh man, I think we're in trouble. We we did this now, and, and what if David comes and attacks us? And so they hire the Syrians to join with them. And, and really, I, if you're reading it, I think that, that David's hand is forced here in order to go to war. I don't know if he would have gone to war over what they did to these men, but his hand's forced when they hire this, this whole other group of, of people to join their army in order to take the offensive. And so, uh, again, if you read the rest of the account, um, the Israelites totally whipped these guys. And uh, if you read it, you would see that, that there's some familiar names there. And the reason for that um, is because we heard them in chapter 8. And so what some think is that in chapter 8, this story is just briefly mentioned. And then here in chapter 10, it's, it's laid out more fully. Um, others think that it, it's actually a separate event. But, um, but as I've dug in, I, th I think that it's just a fuller account of what chapter 8 summarizes. But either way, that's the story of chapter 10. And the reason that I think it's included here now in our story is because of the thematic link of David showing kindness to Mephibosheth in chapter 9, and then him trying to show kindness to Hanan in chapter 10. And so that's these three chapters in a nutshell, but let me stop there and to pull back because I want to, as I said at the beginning of the message, to draw out what it is I think that these three chapters teach us about God and about the kind of king that he chooses to represent his kingdom. You see, don't forget, Saul, his name um, was meant asked for. And Saul was the king that the people asked for, whereas David, he is the king that God chose. And so I want to, again, draw out why I believe that David here, before we take this hard turn to look at all of his faults, why I think here that he represents Yahweh's chosen king. And so as I studied these three chapters this week, the five characteristics that I saw or traits of Yahweh's king uh, are this. The first one is this, that God's chosen king administers justice. I, I skipped a verse earlier, but if you look at chapter 8, verse 15, here is what it says. So David reigned over all of Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. You see, for David, for at least part of his reign as king, he ran his kingdom and he treated people with fairness and justice. You see, David lived in a world, and you and I live in a world, where governments and kingdoms oftentimes do anything but administer justice and equity to their people. No, rather, they're out for selfish gain. They're out for what benefits them. But here, we see that God's chosen king is one who cares about justice and not only does he care about justice, but he administers it to the people. One of the surprising things um, that, that you read as you go throughout the Old Testament is that many, many years after David passed away, 
you begin to see the Old Testament prophets prophesy that a, another king is coming. And when this king comes, he is going to run a kingdom with justice and equity. And there's so many of these passages you could look at, but, but I want to just show you one, and it's one of my favorites. And last week, Pastor Chris shared a verse, and he said, it's Christmas in July, and so I want to continue that theme on by looking at Isaiah 9. In Isaiah 9, that famous Handel's Messiah, that wonderful passage, it says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will, deal, will do this. And so here's Isaiah talking, you know, David was a great king and all, but there's another king coming. And when this king comes, he is going to bring a kingdom of justice. He is going to have a kingdom of righteousness. You see, when Jesus came to the earth, he brought with him the kingdom of God. And as a result, he brought, he brought the ethics of the kingdom. He administered justice and righteousness to the people. He broke down the, the barriers that man had created. Now, we realize that this kingdom isn't fully realized. It, it wasn't fully realized in Jesus' time here on earth, and it isn't fully realized yet. But as his followers, as, as, as uh, subjects of the king, as, as men and women who are part of the kingdom of God, we have, he has left us here to do the work, to spread the kingdom and its values to the world around us. That's why Jesus uh, commanded us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And part of what that means is that, is that the kingdom ethics will, would be a part of spreading about the earth, that, that what goes on in heaven would, would begin to take place here on earth. And so we have been called to administer justice to those around us. And while we may never be a king or a queen, while we may never rule a kingdom, you and I can minister justice in our homes. We can minister justice in our community, in our neighborhoods. We can administer justice in our church. That's why this last week we had a second meeting where we talked about some racial reconciliation matters. It's a justice issue, and, and we want to be about uh, a church, and we want to be about men and women who care about justice and who follow in our king's footsteps and administer it, to step into those places where, where things are not right, and we say, no, that's, that's not how Jesus wants it. We want to we be people who are about administering justice. And so that's the first characteristic. The, the second one that I saw was this, that, that God's chosen king keeps promises. David, as I've already pointed out, he kept his promise, his covenant with Jonathan by showing love and kindness towards his son, Mephibosheth. And so if that was true of David, the question becomes, did Jesus keep his promises? Well, there's so many promises that we could look at in Jesus' life, but let me just show you a few. Uh, in John 2, 19, he, he told him, he said, I'll destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Or you destroy this temple and in three days It'll be raised up, and in the text there it says he's talking about his body. And so did Jesus, after three days, rise from the grave? 
Well, as believers, we believe, yes, he did. He, he defeated death. He rose from the grave. He kept this promise. In Acts 1 and in John 14, he promised, after I send, I'll, I'll send you a helper. I'll send the Holy Spirit. And so did Jesus keep that promise? Did the Holy Spirit come? Well, again, we believe that, yes, he did. In Matthew 16, 18, he promised, I'll build my church. Has Jesus been building his church? Well, I think we can say yes. Here we are thousands of miles from Jerusalem, 2,000 years later, and here we are as part of his church. Jesus keeps his promises. Now, we know that there are promises that have not happened yet, that are yet to be fulfilled, but I think given Jesus' track record, we can have confidence that he will keep those as well. And in fact, we know that he has good reasons for, for holding off for a time. And in 2 Peter 3, Peter says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some count slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, David waited 15 to 20 years in order to keep his promise, his covenant to Jonathan. And we don't even know if he had a good reason for waiting so long. Whereas Jesus, because of his compassion and kindness, he is delaying. But, Nate, but make no mistake, he will keep every promise that he has made because he is the true and better king and, that, and because of that, he keeps his promises. The third characteristic that I saw is this, that God's chosen king extends kindness. We saw David in these chapters twice extend kindness to a, to a person, first to Mephibosheth and then to Hanan in chapter 10. Mephibosheth accepted and received David's kindness whereas Hanan despised and rejected it. And the same is true of King Jesus. He has extended kindness to all mankind by offering them forgiveness of sins through his death, resurrection, through his death, burial, and resurrection. And as a result, he has, he has extended protection, provision, and position, as we talked about earlier. And yet you and I, we have a choice. Will we, like Mephibosheth, accept his kindness, or will we, like Hanan, reject it? And so I want to ask you this morning, have you received the kindness, the love, the grace of the king, or have you so far rejected it? You see, you have to make a choice. You can't, you can't just ignore his kindness, and ignoring it, you're making the choice. And so if you have not yet received the Lord's kindness, I, I want to invite you to do that. You can do that right now. You can say, Lord Jesus, I, I, I recognize that, that I am in need of your kindness, and I receive it. Lord, please forgive my sins. Welcome me into your kingdom. And if you do that, he will. He's faithful. He extends kindness. The, the fourth characteristic of the king is this, that God's chosen king removes shame. We didn't talk about it in detail, but Mephibosheth's name literally carries with it the idea of shame. Scholars are unclear exactly of all what his name means, but we know that shame is a part of it. Not only that, but... But the town that David found Mephibosheth in is this town called Lodabar. And the name Lodabar literally means no word or nothing. And so here you have a man who is hiding out in a place that's so insignificant that its name basically means nowhereville. And not only that, but his own name actually means shame. And yet here is King David. He calls him out of nowhereville and he places him at the king's table. And in doing so, I believe he removes this man's shame. Not only that, but in chapter 10, when his men are disgraced by Hanan, by having their beard shaved and their garments cut off, 
he sends delegates out to them to meet them along the way. And he sends them these comforting words. He says, guys, wait until your beards grow back before you come back. And in doing so, he removes their shame. So again, the question is this. Did Jesus, does Jesus remove shame? Well, not only did Jesus remove our shame, but he became our shame. See, on the cross, Jesus bore our sins. And you and I, we experience shame when we sin, when we fall short, and we, we experience shame when others sin against us. And yet, as I just said, on the cross, Jesus bore all of that. It says in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Not only that, but 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so no matter what you have done, no matter what has been done against you, the shame that has been brought against you because of someone else's sin, through Jesus you have been made noon. Your shame is gone. Now Satan will try to, to, to get you to believe that it's still there. He'll try to get you to believe that, oh no, there's something still wrong with you. You're still dirty. You still are falling short. But the truth is, is no. Jesus has taken it. He has removed our shame. And so that's the fourth characteristic. The last one is this. God's chosen king defeats enemies. God's chosen king defeats our enemies. Both in chapter 8 and in chapter 10, they highlight the fact that David was victorious over his and Israel's enemies. And Jesus, again, on the cross, has defeated his enemies by defeating sin, death, and Satan. David may have, for a brief period, brought uh, rest from his enemies to the people, but Jesus, through his uh, victory on the cross and his defeat of them, he has brought eternal rest to us, his people. And so again, that's, these are the characteristics of the king. I could have drawn out more, but these were the five that, that stood out to me. And, and actually, Ben, you can go ahead and come up here as we begin to close. I don't know which of these five characteristics this morning you need to lean into. You see, all of these could hit us at a different place in life. Maybe this morning you're feeling a sense of shame. Well, you need to lean into the fact that our king removes shame. Maybe this morning you're just feeling defeated. You're feeling like, why does it just feel like the world keeps winning? Why, why does it feel like, like I, I just can't overcome any sin in my life? Well, you need to lean into the fact that our king has defeated our enemies. Maybe you're losing hope. You look around and you just feel like, why is there so much injustice in our world? Why does it, does it feel like, again, like, like no matter what I do, that, that I keep getting put down, that I'm not treated fairly? Well, you need to lean into the fact this morning that our king and his kingdom is about administering justice. And so I don't know what you need to lean into this morning, where you need to put your hope and your faith, but I know that these five are true of Jesus. I know that he is a king who administers justice, who keeps his promise, who extends kindness, who uh, invites us, um, who removes shame, who defeats our enemies. And as we approach the Lord's table this morning. We're going to take communion. I, I just want us to go back and to, to lean a little bit into that story of Mephibosheth. You see, you and I, we have been invited to the king's table. And that's what communion represents this morning. It represents the invitation into 
the family of God, the invitation to be a son or a daughter of the king. And the thing that made that possible was the fact that the king humbled himself. He left his throne in heaven and he came to earth and he lived the life that you should have lived and he died the death that you deserved. And so in a moment, our ushers are going to come down and they're going to release you row by row and, and you're going to have an opportunity to come to the table. And anyone who has, who has uh, received Jesus, who has, uh, who has accepted him, can come down and take communion this morning. And so, uh, again, I'm going to close us here in prayer. And as they come down, uh, you can feel free to take the elements and go back to your seat and take them whenever you feel ready. But, but before we do, let me close us in prayer. Jesus, thank you that even as this morning, as we looked at all of these ways that David was perhaps faithful and even great, thank you, Jesus, that next week as we turn and look at his sin and his falls, Lord, that, that Jesus, you never did that. Lord Jesus, you were perfect. Lord Jesus, you were faithful. Lord Jesus, you were kind throughout your entire life, and you still are kind, Lord, as you reign from heaven. Lord, I just pray, Holy Spirit, you would help turn our eyes to Jesus as we come to the table. Lord, help us to see what his body and his blood represents. Lord, help us just to, to, in a tangible way, feel his embrace, to feel his love and his kindness. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who's feeling a sense of shame because of something they did or that was done to them, God, as they come to the table, may that shame just begin to flee. May it go to the cross and be extinguished, Lord. May, they, may all of us today just feel the freedom that we have in you. So, Lord, we ask for that. We celebrate that this morning. We celebrate you, Lord Jesus. We worship you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.